Well, today, all around the world, our brothers and sisters are celebrating our resurrected Savior. In addition to being Easter morning, this past Sunday marked our six-year anniversary since we began worshiping together as a church. So, officially, this Sunday is the beginning of our seventh year together as a church, and what an interesting journey it has been. I am so thankful for God's providence in our life together as a church family. And here's what I want to do today. Our very identity as a church is defined by Christ's resurrection. And so what I want to do is I want to talk to you for a little bit about how the resurrection of Christ transforms everything And I also want to talk to you about how it shapes who we are and who we hope to be as a church. Okay? Jennifer read the passage. I do just want to read again in Luke chapter 24. I want to read verses 13 through 15. And then I'll pray and we'll get started. Okay? So Luke chapter 24 verse 13. That very day. That very day. Two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near. Jesus himself drew near. Let's pray. Father, we do give you thanks for this day. Lord, um, As a Christian community, as brothers and sisters around the world, we we set this time aside to celebrate the fact that your son is risen and reigning. And Father, we thank you that, that really every Sunday morning we have that privilege to come together as your children, together in your presence, under your word, as brothers and sisters in fellowship, both with heaven and with each other. I pray that today you would sit enthroned on the praises of your people. Father, I pray that today it would be, Lord, like on that road so many years ago, today it would be your Son, Jesus, through the Spirit, opening in the Scriptures all of the things to us concerning Himself. Do great things for the glory of your name and the good of your people, I pray, and say, Amen. All right, three things that we're going to look at together this morning. Number one, we want to look at the, the resurrection as a historical event. Second, I want to look at it as a personal event. And then I want to look at it as a life-transforming event. Historical, personal, life-transforming. Number one, a historical event. You're, this is important because until you see the resurrection as a historical event, it can never be a life-transforming event event for you, right? Look at verse 13. That very day. I just That little phrase, I got excited about that this week as I was preparing for this. That very day. Luke, who wrote this, was a medical doctor. And he's written this account of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And his attention to the fine details of things like the socioeconomic conditions, the geography, important people, places, 
and things have led uh, scholars to understand the book of Luke and Luke himself as a first-rate historian. The book of Luke was not written in the form of a myth or legend. It's presented to us on its face and in its content as a historical narrative. Like So even more, as Christians, we hold that this is even more certain than the history books you studied when you were in high school or college, right? And I want you to listen to Luke's purpose so you can understand where he's coming from. Luke chapter 1, in verse 1, he said, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. The book of Luke isn't presented as a myth or a legend. It's a compilation of eyewitness accounts that are presented to us as historical events. Um, Just consider a few things with me for a moment. You know the New Testament um, presents at least 12 distinct, um, 12 separate eyewitness accounts of people who saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. Several of those incidents including, included multiple people seeing him at the same time. One of the famous times, Paul claimed that over 500 people at, in the same place at the same time saw the risen Lord. When Paul wrote that, he even included, he said, listen, lots of them are still alive. So if you want to, you yourself can go verify it with the eyewitnesses. Jesus actually, you know, it wasn't just like these random appearances. I mean, some of them, Jesus is like kind of showing up out of the clear blue, and you're like, oh. And if that's all it was, you know, you could have said, nah, people are hallucinating or wishful thinking or all these things. But Jesus spent 40 days after his resurrection with his disciples before he ascended into heaven. Christianity would have never gotten off the ground if it was just these little weird, little mystical, sporadical... I mean, like if it was just the one Paul had, like Paul's is unusual, right? If you're familiar with it. If it was just, uh, he appeared to me on the road to Damascus. Well, who can verify this, Paul? But hundreds of eyewitnesses on a dozen or more occasions are witnessing him in the flesh over a 40-day period. Now, when you're thinking about the historicity of the resurrection, it's really important to consider that even Jesus' closest disciples didn't believe at first. This this is a game changer when you see this, y'all. Even they were skeptics. First of all, they didn't even understand that the resurrection, that the the crucifixion or the resurrection was part of Jesus' plan. The first witnesses were who? Who were the first witnesses to the empty tomb? It's women, right? The first person who saw the risen Lord, Mary Magdalene, a woman. And guess what? 
when the women came back talking about the empty tomb and Mary had seen Jesus, the guys didn't believe them, right? They're going to run down and, and trying to verify things. Um, Jesus begins to appear uh, to the disciples, and on one of those early occasions, he appeared with a group of them, and, and we're told about how they struggled to believe. This is in Luke chapter 24, verse 36 and following. It says, when Jesus stood among them, they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. I mean, the disciples are like, we're seeing a ghost. It's like a paranormal, that's what they're thinking. But Jesus is like, hey, wait, why are y'all doubting? Why, why didn't you listen to all the things I taught? How many times, like, Jesus never said this, but if it was us, how many times did I have to tell you I was going to die and rise again, right? But you know what he is? He's like, why are you doubting? Look at my hands. Touch me. Jesus literally says, does a spirit have flesh and bones? And it comes down here in verse 41. It says that they still disbelieved. You know what Jesus did then? He's like, what else can I do to prove to y'all I'm alive, I'm here. So he said, give me something to eat. So he starts literally eating fish and chips, I guess. The point is, even Jesus' closest disciples, even the apostles, didn't believe in the resurrection at first. They were skeptics. And rightly so. They needed to be convinced by the evidence it had to be proved to them. Now, one of the apostles was not with the others during some of the early appearances. Thomas heard reports, but he wouldn't believe. In fact, in John twenty twenty five, Thomas said, unless, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails... And unless I place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, Thomas said, I will never believe. Wasn't long after that when Jesus appeared to the group again, only this time Thomas was there. And you you get the sense that Jesus' intent on curing Thomas' unbelief he goes right for Thomas. And this is in, in John chapter 20, verse 27. He said to Thomas, can you imagine? I mean, I mean, just try to put yourself in the room. Or maybe even if it was you, maybe you're here today struggling to believe that the resurrection really happened. Can you imagine Jesus looking you in the eyes and saying, look, look at my hands and feet. Come, Thomas, put your hands into the print of, of the nails. You know what I find so interesting about that passage? We're not told that Thomas actually went all the way to actually touch the nail prints. But you know what Thomas did do? Thomas fell down and he cried out, My Lord and my God. Maybe you're struggling to believe in the supernatural, that miracles are possible, that Jesus actually rose from the dead. If you struggle with that, you're in good company today. Because even if it's his closest friends and the greatest leaders 
in the early church also struggled to believe. But here's the thing. Uh, Out of these men, the apostles, and, and other people surrounding that close company, do you know how many of them gave their life as martyrs? Because they believed that Jesus rose from the dead. That is compelling, y'all, right? Because and the reason that's so compelling, people have given their lives for things that were not true. But they would have known it wasn't true, right? You're going to suffer um, persecution and being stoned to death, speared to death, hung upside down, beheaded, because you had, I'm going to start a religion and I'm going to get famous. Eh, no, it would have never lasted. I want you to listen to what Chuck Colson said about the resurrection. Chuck Colson was a political advisor to Richard Nixon uh, during his time in office. Chuck Colson actually spent time in prison because of the Watergate scandal. Listen to what Chuck Colson said. He said, I know the resurrection is a fact. And Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world. And they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me the apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Close quote. You know, if the resurrection is simply a myth or a legend, it's nothing better than a children's nursery rhyme or fairy tale. But if Christ has risen from the dead as a matter of fact and a matter of history, that changes everything. You realize if he has, you have to consider Christ. And you have to consider the claims of Christianity. The historical evidence is compelling and powerful. So we, we want to look at it as, number one, a historical event, but let's look at it, number two, as a, as a personal event, because if the resurrection is ever going to have any power in your life personally, you're going to have to have your own personal encounter with it. You're going to have to have your own encounter with the risen Christ. Look back again at uh, chapter 24. This is Luke 24, verse 5. It says, Jesus himself drew near. And went with them. Jesus himself. This is incredibly personal. If you're going to experience the power and the joy of the resurrection, there's going to have to be a moment in your life. Hear me, please. Every one of you. There's going to have to be a moment in every single one of our lives when Jesus draws near to us. As long as the resurrection remains merely a historical event for you, it's of little use to you. But there has to come a point for you, kind of like in Mark chapter 5, and you remember the 12-year-old girl? 
that was sick and Christ raised. Or in John chapter 11 with a Lazarus who was dead in the tomb for four days. Every single one of us needs Christ to come and say, in effect, Lazarus, Matt, come forth. Every single one of us needs a spiritual resurrection. In John chapter 5, verse 25, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. If you're here this morning and you're already a believer, then there was a moment when the risen Savior came to you through the Holy Spirit and called you by name and the life-giving power of the voice of Jesus raised you from death to life. Now, it could be I want, I, want, I want some of you guys to listen to me this morning. It could be that you're here and you haven't heard the voice of Jesus calling you yet. But do you consider, would you consider that perhaps Jesus has brought you here today and that's what he's doing at this very moment? calling you and if he is there's only one thing you can do you need to get up and come to him and say lord here am i have your way with me and if you have not heard the voice of jesus calling you i I pray that (laughs) i love you enough to pray that god will not give you rest until you have until you have responded I love how on the road to Emmaus, Jesus drew near, near to these disciples. He, I mean, look at these things. I, I, I could do a sermon series on this. I'm not, don't worry, I'm not. But, but listen, he drew near to them, right? He walked with them. He fellowshiped with them. He taught them from the Scriptures. He fellowshiped with them in their home, right? And, and that's what the Christian life is about for us, y'all. We're, we're, we're meant in, in this life that we share with Christ, in this life we share with fellow believers, that we would walk with Christ, that we would walk with one another, that we would learn from Him, learn from His Word. The, the Christian life is all about communion with Christ, with Him and His family. And He ought to be a central figure in our church, family, our lives, our homes. Well, for these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, the resurrection was, yes, a historical event. They were experiencing it real time. It was a personal event. Jesus drew near to them. But it's also a life-changing event. Number three, this is our third point. And this gets down where I want to show you um, the connection this passage has to us as a church family. Our name, The Road, if you ever thought, what a dumb name. I admit it's a little odd if you don't know what the background is, but our church is named on this passage, the road to Emmaus. That's what we're talking about, the road. It's because we want the things that happened on that day to happen here 
over and over and over again. Right? Well, this passage embodies who we are. <laughs> now listen, all of you are plenty smart enough to know um, we're not a perfect church. And we have not arrived. I'm not a, I'm by far, I'm far from a perfect pastor. If you're a member here, we know we're not perfect. But this is, this is what we desire. This is what we are hungering for. This is what we are aiming for. Even, even our hungering, I confess to you, um, even in my, my vision for this, my ambition for this, my desires for this, even my desires are weaker than they should be. But this is the direction we want to be steering towards. Well, well what in particular? Well, in Luke twenty four twenty seven, it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I'd like you to notice the Christ-centeredness of the scriptures. You know, Jesus didn't say, hey, let's have a, let's have a self-help pep talk here. You know, he didn't say, let's have a, your best life now kind of five steps to, you know, a better job or a better family. And I'm not saying those things aren't part of the Christian life and I do believe the Bible addresses those things, but, but according to Jesus, He is the central figure in the Scriptures. He is what they are all about. But I think sometimes, and you tell me if I'm wrong, I mean, tell me later. You don't have to argue with me now, but I think sometimes we get this reversed, right? Sometimes people act if the, as if the Bible was all about us. And Jesus is just like a really great supporting character in a story that's about us. And, and sometimes it, when we approach the Bible like that, not in a Christ-centered way, uh, but in a, in a me-centered way, uh, we're not coming because we really want more of Christ. We really want more fellowship with Him. We really want to, we really want to honor Him more. We want to love Him more. We want to obey Him more completely. Sometimes... And I get this, y'all. I get this because I'm like this too. Sometimes we just want help with our lives. It's not really Jesus I want. I just want Jesus to be like a helper to make other things in my life better. I want him to help me with my circumstances. You know, if that's all we're doing with the Bible, then what's happening is we're, we're only receiving a false sense of the help that we really need. When we come to the Scriptures, what we really need is more of Him, more fellowship with Him, growing more in the grace and knowledge of Christ, growing in our understanding of His will for our lives. Coming to the Scriptures, or coming to worship in the church, um, coming to hear the word preached, going to a Bible study, getting together, have coffee with your friends. If you're just doing it in a, in a me-centered way, that's never going to transform your life. It's never going to give you the help you'd really need. How do I know that? Listen, I want you to hear what these two disciples said, right? So now I'm in Luke 24 and I'm down in verse 32. 
Listen, after this encounter they had with Jesus, this is it, y'all. This is the big thing. This is the one I want y'all to really see. After their encounter and Jesus disappears, here's what they say. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Do you see what happened there? Their hearts were set on fire because Jesus did two things. He opened the scriptures so that they could see him and he opened their hearts. He opened their understanding so they could see Christ as the focal point of the scriptures. Our hearts will never be set on fire. Y'all, y'all know the story of Narcissus, right? Coming down to the side of the water to admire that image of himself. None of us like narcissists. But maybe sometimes spiritually we are narcissistic. If we come to the Bible, if we come to Christianity, if we come to our faith in that way, we are actually, we're actually preventing ourselves from getting the help that we really need. But coming to just to look at and be preoccupied with ourselves is never going to set our hearts on fire for Christ. Why is this the one thing? You know, when they said, did not our hearts burn within us? They were saying everything inside them, their hearts, their souls, everything in their innermost being was drawn out to Christ in in wonder, love, and praise. I I mean, I I think this is the essence of worship and adoration that they were experiencing for Christ. And this and this dynamic, this our hearts burning within us that I know uh, I, I don't feel this all the time. I wish I did. Now, if you've ever felt this, you can't stand the times when you don't feel it. But it's this thing, this element that is the transforming power in our lives. Once you experience it, it it re-engineers the way our affections, our desires work. You see how for these disciples, their encounter with the risen Christ, Him teaching them, his word changed everything. The resurrection solidified a movement. It solidified the beginning of this movement that turned, we're told, it turned the world upside down. And I kind of like the, the, pa- the pastor who baptized me, whenever he would come to that passage, he would say, well, really turned it right side up, right? Six years ago, when we had a a vision for planting a new church here in Tifton, this passage was our inspiration. We wanted what happened on that day, on that Easter morning, to happen for us week in and week out. Week in and week out, you know, there's a lot of things, we, we do the same things all the time that God has ordained. Uh, whether it's the, the proclamation of the word uh, in a sermon like now, or whether it's 
proclaiming the gospel and the great truths of God in the songs we sing, whether it's a Sunday school, a Bible study, uh, whether it's a a one-on-one discipleship meeting, whatever it is, we want the risen Savior setting our hearts on fire over and over again, opening our eyes just all the time to see more and more of Him, more and more the glory of who He is, more and more the beauty of His character, more and more the power of His gospel. Like these two disciples, I would love to see more and more of us opening our homes and our lives to others, to fellowship with Jesus. What do you mean, Matt? Well, do you remember? I I just want you to think about this. You remember that time when Jesus said, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. And they're like, Lord, when did, we, when did we do any of that? When did we see you all these things? And Jesus answered them. He said, listen, you've got to understand, when you did those things to the least of these, my brothers, you were doing it to me. Is it possible for some of us that we really aren't experiencing much of the fellowship of Christ that we could be enjoying because we're really not practicing fellowship and hospitality and serving our brothers and sisters and the strangers who do not yet know Christ. The last thing from this passage that we want to shape us as a church, hearing the word, being transformed by it, welcoming the stranger, opening our homes, opening our lives for, for genuine Christian hospitality and fellowship. But this last thing, you know, these two, two disciples, the, the experience was so powerful that that evening, even though it was late, even though the day was far spent, even though they were seven miles away from getting back to Jerusalem, They couldn't hold it in. They got up and they had to go out and tell others that they had experienced the risen Savior. The distance back to town, the time of day, none of it mattered. It was very inconvenient, but the inconveniences didn't matter to them. What I'm praying is that six years ago, here at the road, our risen Savior ignited a spark that He would continue to fan greater and greater into a great flame. That our lives would never be the same. And that by His grace and for His glory, He would use us to bring the life-changing power of Easter to our families, to our community, and to our world. 
Father, we, we do thank you. Lord, where do we even get started to thank you for your wonderful plan of redemption through your son Jesus? Lord, who, who you sent to redeem us in our place condemned, he stood. And Father, you raised him from the dead as the proof the vindication of His sin-bearing sacrifice that you received it, that, that the payment for our sins has been paid in full. Father, I pray that the resurrection, that the, the reality of it would be personal for us and it would be transformative. Father, I thank you for these past six years that you have been with us and blessed us as a little church family. And Lord, we, would, we just simply ask for our church family that you would be with us, that you would bless us with your presence, help us to be faithful, and use us for the glory of your name and your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.